0: Welcome back to episode number eighty-eight of the BDU podcast. We got a very large amount of Q and A questions today, so what we're going to do is we're just going to dive straight into them. The first one is addressing weak points. How do you go? How do you boys go about it um, in regards to yourself or even with clients as well? What's your first point of call, DZ?
1: Yep. Uh, so with weak point training, I think in most cases uh, our program bias should be towards weak points, and that might just be through the allotment of greater training volume so pushing a little bit more sets per muscle towards the the intended areas um other areas in which we can further bias uh you know those target tissues is, is perhaps a lot them higher up in terms of the the sequential approach with our program so if we were to put these exercises higher up towards the start of a program we might be a little bit more fresh approaching them than for example if i tend to do a lot of my hamstring, you know, exercises towards the later aspects of my, my training. And it's always quads at the start. Then, then of course, I may not be approaching my training as fresh, uh, to target those, you know, those tissues. Right. So I think there's a few strategies that we we can utilize to to further bias, but I do think that in, in some token, people that have glaring weaknesses where you look at their physique, you look at their canvas and, you notice that there are certain muscle groups that perhaps are, are lacking. Uh, I, I think it's not just about, you know, pushing more volumes towards those areas. It's also about how they're executing these movements as well. So, you know, are they are they executing the movements to the standard which is gonna produce the intended result? Uh, and I think that there's, in most cases, some things that can be improved upon, uh, such as perhaps in like, let's say an RDL, ensuring that we're getting good tension awareness on the hamstrings. And the glutes, are we facilitating a good stretch in that in that in that lengthened position, or am I feeling all of my load through my, all through the lower back, and the exercise is not really yielding, you know, a good result for me? Okay, I can't need to adjust maybe my execution there to better bias the hamstrings. So I think there's a few different yeah strategies that can be utilized in weak point training.
0: What about you, flat back Betty, Lawrence, Jack? Oh, oh
2: yeah. Mm. i mean that would have been me a few years ago to be fair
3: well mate as a man who has recently seen radford smith in next to no clothing very recently and then also he posed for me at the gym which was Mm. good um i can confirm that (laughs) some significant tissue has essentially been added to um pretty much every inch of that man and i mean Mm. every inch So, yeah, there's a a big guy coming to stage in 2043, ladies and gents. You just wait. You ain't ready for it. Jokes aside, I think that probably what I would add to what DC said is remember that like when you look at a volume study, for example, or if you look at the classic, say Schoenfeld recommendations of like 10 to 20 sets per muscle group, you have to remember that that is like an average of the people who were in that study and for every person that may have you know, been very good with 10 to 20, there's probably a couple that needed only five sets a week for the requisite muscle group. And likewise, there was probably others that needed 35 sets a week. So I think don't be afraid to push into some high, high volumes, even if it might sound like, oh my gosh, this is way too high on paper. Because if you have been training a muscle group with good intensity, with good execution, and you're still just not seeing that breakthrough, you may need to try and just push those volumes up a long way. And the other thing I'd probably say is don't be afraid to try some different intensity techniques. Like for myself, one thing that every, you know, every block I want to try play around with is a few just different ways of approaching the training. So this is my final week before the deload. So this week in particular, I'm playing around with a few things like I was doing some DC stretching, which was not a type of stretching that our DC proposed, but, you know, he is the the DC. So, you know, we do give him that. And then also, you know, some other types of intensity techniques, whether they be like muscle rounds, like maybe you try some of the Widowmaker um, sets that, you know, the Dante Trudel popularized um, quite a while ago as well. So, you know, just think outside the box a little bit. Yes, we have our frequency, training, intensity, you know, the total volume throughout the week. But, you know, just thinking outside the square and just providing a bit of a novel stimulus could be what you
0: need to, to hurry along some of those laggy body parts. I think people will also be quite surprised at probably how much volume said muscle group can actually take across the week when it's set up correctly. Like, you know, if you're hitting it with like maybe like a three times frequency and now you're splitting the volume across those sessions, chances are you could probably tolerate a lot more volume than what you'd be able to if you're only training back once or maybe even twice a week. And, you know, some people might get like, you know, oh, well the study, the papers say 20 sets. I don't want to go over 20 sets, but. Like you said, Lawrence, like, you know, chances are a lot, there's also outliers there. And not only that, if you're pulling some of the training volume back from other muscle groups, if it is a very lacking body part, chances are you can probably actually get away with a little bit more than what the recommendations say. You got anything else there to add, Jack?
2: Not really. No, I think those are definitely the major points. And I would I would just grab the lowest hanging fruit first. Don't try anything over compl- overly complicated when it might not be necessary um, to begin with.
0: Hmm. I think apart from like the frequency, the exercise selection, the form progression on the lift and the intensity, the last one you could probably attack is maybe the nutrition. So maybe you might have had a really productive like building phase and now you've done a cutting phase and you want to more or less like maintain, or you might be chopping and changing between like trying to hold within like a couple of kilos here and there, like ensuring that your nutrition is actually set up to be making the progression that you want. Like, you know, you're spending time, um, at an act actual like surplus you know you're obviously ensuring that you're getting enough uh protein in and also you know you're also getting decent uh allotments of protein and carbohydrates throughout the day to fuel those sessions would you say Um, that is there any like merit because i don't know
3: this is maybe a bit more prominent in like the traditional bro community but like you sometimes hear of these IFBB pros who they're like oh yeah like my coach scheduled my cheat day for x so that i'm like full leading into a week body part day but it's funny because like they all refer to both instances it's like oh yeah like i have my cheat day before the week body part body part day or on it or after it and depending what like fits their coach's bias that somehow is like the magical secret is that anything you've played around with where maybe you like schedule a refeed day for a client not just because it's a a big training day but specifically because it is an area they struggle
0: with In a preparation phase, I think it's a little bit different from like in a calorie deficit. So for myself, like I've definitely had times where like, maybe for example, like the leg days are getting really hard and we want to try and keep as much leg size as possible. Like, you know, maybe playing around with like having your high days, maybe if you had two high days for that week, putting them one the day before and then one on the day of leg day, I think it's a good little psychological advantage going into those leg days. And not only that as well, like, you know, it might help keep training performance, um, you know, little bit more elevated but in the grand scheme of things you know when you probably look at it over the entirety of the week you're still in a calorie deficit um and whatnot and if you're able to train those sessions like you know with adequate intensity i realistically don't think it's going to play that much of a difference it'd be one of those little zero percents like with maybe a one percent what about you jack have you played around with that like you know putting like high calorie days on like weak point days
2: yeah, I think it does make sense, but I, I mean, in a deficit, you're you're more likely going to be preventing muscle loss as opposed to growing new tissue. So, I mean, that's something that I think AJ and I are going to potentially experiment with is is uh, giving more fuel on the leg days because my legs lean out so much faster than the upper. So, it makes sense to prioritize fueling if you are going to run a high day. Like if if you have really if you have a really good chest, then I mean, what benefit are you going to get from? Uh, running a high day on chest day or before chest day like you're better off putting it around a weak point day in my opinion um but there's if someone's having a cheat day in their off season like that doesn't make any sense to me because you're you're, you're tapped up with calories and glycogen and protein all the time um so i'm assuming Lawrence, you're referring to prep or maybe not
3: Oh look, mate! I, I don't think that you're you're truly full in the off season. Obviously, DIY and I studied this at length. You know, with our own applications. I mean, I'm flat right now. Mm. Why? Yeah, because there's been flat. a severe lack of cheesecake in the diet. <laughs> Where
2: Where's your closest cheesecake factory?
3: I think Cleveland. Dubai.
0: Yeah the, look, yeah, oh, actually, the,
3: the, yeah, the closest Magnolia is. is uh, it's about 30 hours of travel away. So look, what are you going to do? Yeah. We're just going to have to get over there. Maybe a bit of banana pud as well. <laughs>
1: Let him cook.
0: What's happening here? A bit of banana Dude, pud. That banana pud was no joke. That was good. And I don't even normally like bananas, to be honest. And, you know, here I am eating banana pud. Oh, oh. No, I wasn't all right next question when can you call yourself a bodybuilder lawrence when do you think you earn the right to call yourself a bodybuilder oh this is such like a metaphysical question
3: because it's almost like to answer what is a bodybuilder you have to then first answer well what is bodybuilding like is it the actual act of completing a contest preparation phase and standing on stage like maybe that is categorized as competitive bodybuilding like that's pretty hard to argue against but you know what about someone who is diligent with their diet you know they're eating protein several times a day they're eating like bodybuilders eat they're training with weights and trying to get bigger they're going through dieting phases and you know massing phases and doing everything that a bodybuilder does but they just don't actually go all the way through with a prep and get it on stage like you know that person is still doing like 90% of what a bodybuilder does. It's just, they're leaving out that last 5%. But I think for me, you know, it's more about like the essence of bodybuilding or like almost the culture that surrounds it. Like if you are someone who takes their training very seriously and your main priority is to build muscle and to improve, you know, your physique by, you know, improving weak points and and adding size and cutting down every now and again to reveal the bigger picture. Like to me, you're a bodybuilder because it's almost like saying, well, you know, if you shoot hoops down at the basketball court, like, no, you're not a basketball player. You have to play in the NBA. Like I don't necessarily agree with that. So I think that, you know, if you view bodybuilding in the way that, you know, we all do where it's your lifestyle and it brings you so much more than just, you know, the minute percentage of actually competing, then in my
0: eyes, you are a bodybuilder. Mm. But I've never really met someone that goes, yeah, I'm a bodybuilder, but I never compete. Like, that. Okay, like, I, I can't say I've really ran into someone at the gym that lives the lifestyle. Like, they might be like, oh, I train like a bodybuilder. But like, unless you, unless you really like step on that stage, like, are you really a bodybuilder? Like, you know, many people like, you know, love to train, love to track their nutrition. But now if we were to look from it from a different point of view, just because you train to put on muscle and just because you eat to put on muscle and stuff like that, do I now, I automatically assume this guy's a fucking bodybuilder just because he does it. Maybe he doesn't want to be a bodybuilder. He just loves, he just wants to put on muscle. Mm. Well, I think a good example,
3: like I know that she has competed, but like the person that I often think about when I think about this question is actually a client of yours, D.Y., Haley, Because I know that she did a competition and from, I think the last time I spoke to her, she wasn't necessarily going to compete she, again. She
0: she actually didn't do the competition because it got canceled because of COVID. Well, there you go. Okay. No, she's so not she a bodybuilder. A,
3: no, but there you go. So like she got close to it, didn't end up competing. And then I think the last time I spoke to her about it, she was like, nah, like, you know, I just like living the lifestyle. So it's like with her, like, She's doing everything that a competitor does, probably to a much higher standard than most competitors. But is she not a bodybuilder?
0: Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one because, like, you know, you okay. go back, but but at least when a, like what your analogy was with the basketball player, they're at least playing the sport. They're still shooting hoops down with the boys. They might be playing games of basketball, but like they're not actually on the stage competing in a bodybuilding competition. But that's such a
3: small part of like what we actually do, like the most the majority of the time of our sport is is in the gym and you could even argue that just like doing the day in day out of prepping the meals eating the meals recovering like that's almost even a bigger part of our sport than just like the minute percentage that is show day
2: Mm. i think it's purely up to the individual like if someone goes to the gym once a week and doesn't track their nutrition and calls themselves a bodybuilder like you're going to be the one who tells them they're not a bodybuilder
3: Mm. yes it's
2: up yeah, well, that's but, fair enough. Though. Well, I might well, not obviously- tell him,
0: but I'm thinking it in my mind. This guy's a fucking not This guy ain't no bodybuilder.
2: Like, if this I don't compete for the next 20 years, am I still a bodybuilder? I guess not then.
0: But you've competed in bodybuilding. So, yeah. like, you know, you've stepped on the stage. You've done the do. Like, okay, you never but- know. With you, Jack, it's it's, it's a, a fuwazi, you know? You never know if he's actually going to step on stage. I, I wouldn't even call you a bodybuilder right now. <laughs> yeah, that's fair.
3: Okay, but DY, I played cricket for like
0: my whole life. I haven't played cricket in seven years. Am I still a cricket player? Mm, yeah, but I'm talking about the people that haven't stepped on stage and then, the, and they don't have any goals to step on stage, but they live the bodybuilding lifestyle. Like, but they actually technically haven't indulged in bodybuilding. Like, they've never stepped on the stage. They never want to step on the stage. Their only goal is to put on muscle. If they come up to you and they say, Yeah, I'm a bodybuilder, you go, Hmm, something here Wait, seems like, you know,
3: I've got the best example. So those nine years of his training career leading up to it was DC not a bodybuilder. He didn't step on stage for ages. He's probably got more muscle mass than like
0: 90% of people walking he around. He solidified oh. himself as a bodybuilder when he but stepped was on he, that stage. What,
3: but so prior to that, let's say he was still in the offseason. He was like, no, nah, not enough size. Say he was Jack, you know, mm. and he was just going more time, more time. Is he not a bodybuilder?
0: Like, yeah. What mean if I do pre med, but then I drop out? Am I still a doctor? Like, even though like, I'm studying to be it, I haven't actually got that goal yet of being a doctor. I know in the down the line I want to do it, but then it gets a bit hard. So then I drop out or I fail the exam. Am I still a doctor? Even though I haven't fully finished the process of That's maybe different seven- Because there's
2: a credential process mm. associated with that.
0: Mm. There, now, this is another situation where I thought. To actually really call yourself probably a competitive bodybuilder, I think you need some level of result to go along with that. Because how many people step on stage and you sit there and you go, Is that really a fucking bodybuilder right now? Like, you know, there's got to be a level of achievement, I feel, or like competitiveness to be like able a to like,
3: damn so now you're not even like even if you've competed you're not even a bodybuilder dy just woke up this morning and was like yeah
0: we've all seen it where someone doesn't belong on the stage and you really go like could i ever call this person a bodybuilder like you know any joe Blow could actually step on the stage
3: okay well are you like you've never competed in bodybuilding are you no. a bodybuilder
0: i wouldn't i would say i'm in the bodybuilding sport but i would i wouldn't if someone goes to me like like what do you like do i would never say like oh i'm a competitive bodybuilder like that wouldn't be like i say i do bodybuilding but i don't actually do the bodybuilding category and that's how i pretty much explain it to them because they wouldn't believe you if you said you did bodybuilding is that right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They say, well, you're way too aesthetic for those guys now. Have you seen them? They're huge. I, yeah, man, I'm all about like the classic proportions, a small waist, nice muscle bellies, you know? And I don't want to be too lean, you know? It's a bit unfair. Yeah. You don't
2: want to be too big either, too big and bulky. Mm.
0: Mm. The only one that hasn't chirped in here is DC. And I want to know like, you know, when can you call yourself a bodybuilder?
1: I'm just being Switzerland here. I'm just, I'm just sitting back, you know, listening yeah. to the, the, the chirping back and forth and... <laughs> No, it, look, it's it's. I think it's a good conversation, and and it's interesting that you brought you brought me up in that in that token with regards to like the you know the prior ten years prior to getting on stage because I think I because if I reflected upon the twenty twenty prep that I did or twenty nine leading to twenty twenty, I in my mind that was the prep that was going to make me a bodybuilder. I wasn't a bodybuilder up until then, and mm. I think when my when my uh, season got pushed back, it kind of made me feel like I was not yet a bodybuilder. I was still experiencing, I guess in a way, like imposter syndrome where I was this avid athlete to be a bodybuilder and to step on stage and do the do, but it was kind of, you know, I was, it was pushed back. So uh, yeah. I mean, I was bodybuilding for sure. Mm. I was certainly lifting weights and, and, and doing the, all the right things in terms of nutrition. I'd done that for a very long time, but uh, to actually be the competitive bodybuilder and and step on stage that represent for me, that represented, or it, it did come to fruition once I actually, you know, did, did the do actually got up on stage. Mm. Uh, I, I think there's like just a lot of new nuance in, in like, you know, what we call ourselves right at the end of the day. And I think Honestly, it it probably really doesn't even matter that much. Um, I, you know, if I if I choose to no longer compete ever again, I probably will still label myself as a bodybuilder because I still train. I still, you know, will track my nutrition and do all those things. Um, uh, you know, for people who who don't choose to compete, I still think you can bodybuild. You know, and you probably still can call yourself a bodybuilder, but you're just not a competitive bodybuilder, right? It's like for someone who uh, likes to uh, run long distance or is a, is a triathlete. Like you can be a triathlete and not be a competitive triathlete, right? So I think it all just comes down to kind of, you know, what 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 you make out of it. And and I, I honestly just don't think it matters that much too.
0: Mm. Yeah. Very fair. Normally a majority of time, I, I won't ask them, but like I can visually see if you're somewhat of a bodybuilder just by the size, which I am not. Sum that up. <laughs> We'll leave that there. <laughs> All right. Anywhere with any coach for a training session, what gym are you picking, Lawrence? And what coach are you picking? It's a... a great question. Mm. See, like, are we talking bodybuilding, any... whatever the hell that is? Yeah. Well, like, listen, like, you could pick a cricket coach, and if he wants to be a bodybuilder, he can be a bodybuilder. Yeah. Okay. Fire out. Cause that's the thing. Like, there's a lot of coaches
3: that, you know, you see them put people through training sessions and it's like, ah, oh, like it looks cool. Like, I mean, yeah, there's like the Charles Glass and, and all that, but I don't know how much of that stuff I really buy into. But I think in terms of like someone who would be awesome, like, are they training as well?
0: Mate, or are they, they, they just can be taking... Uh, the, the guy didn't leave too long of a question. He just said... Uh, uh, well, uh, you could which, do a basketball which... session with Squat U. Yeah, yeah, exactly. perfect. Or you can even try his new squat shoes as well. So up to you. Yeah, with that wide toe, baby. Yeah, a lot of
3: support. So much toe toe room. I'll probably say a session with AJ at Ultraflex Rotherham.
2: Uh, That'll be my selection. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Very solid choice. What about you, Jack?
0: I mean, the exact same.
2: Yeah, I'm going to have to say the same thing, aren't I? I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was unfortunate that I wasn't wasn't able to get there when I was in the UK last year, but um, yeah, I might see him in the US for a session. Jack's already had a session with
3: me at Powerhouse. So, I mean, he's yeah. ticked that box. Nat- exactly. Naturally, AJ at Rotherham is
0: the second. Mm-hmm. What about UDC? Who Are you picking?
1: Mm, well, I mean, if it could be anyone, uh, I would probably go with uh, John Meadows, RIP. Um yeah, I remember. You know, when I first started into training, I was, you know, like the the, the resources that you followed were, were sort of mixed between evidence based and and perhaps not not evidence based. You know, in magazines and things like this. But I used to read a lot of um, articles from T Nation. You know, as a as a kid, you know, going through the. The, the content and, and John Meadows would uh, would write a lot of articles on that on that website and a lot of the principles that he had put forth and and I think he's a very educated man, uh, and he trains damn hard and he's just a really nice guy. So uh, I think it would have been really cool to have a session with him for sure.
3: Great call, DC. What gym though?
1: Oh, what gym? Um... I mean, I probably want to. I mean, I haven't ticked off Bev's gym, right? So I, I really want to get over there and have a look at that.
0: Yeah, it's hard to get. Speaking speaking on like those trainers though, Lawrence, that are like you know that you see. Like I remember seeing a Milos session, like of him training one of these guys. I think it was an Asian guy over in one of the J- uh, Japan gyms, and it was like insane. He would do like a leg day, and it would be eight exercises back to back. It would be like leg extension, then into like a hack squat then into like a leg press, a lying hand. And it was just straight back to back and he would just run them and just ruin them. I remember seeing like even like Sergio Olivia um, in there as well. I was like, holy God, that would be an absolute nightmare. Doing like eight hard exercises back to back all to failure. And then you rerun that three times.
3: Yeah, mate, honestly, give me one of those like 60 year old Brazilian women that are just like torturing people in some like dungeon gym in the middle of Chile like those sessions where like there's some, you know, IFBB wellness pro and they literally look like they've been like stabbed because they're just like in absolute agony. They've got four people moving the leg press for them at that point. Or D-Y, did you send that video in the other day of that some old dude and he's like training like an IFBB pro and this dude is literally putting his whole body weight to like move the machine with the guy? Remember you said that in <laughs> yeah, the other Yeah,
0: day. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because, like, that coach is an Olympian coach. Like, he's coached multiple Olympia winners. So, you know, just obviously, like... Yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting one. Who's your pick, uh, D-Y? Mm, it's hard. It's a very, very hard one because if it had to be a coach, I really think, like, you know, training with Hanny Rambod would be, like, something super special. Like, you know, how many Olympia wins, like 20-plus Olympia wins. Um, even though some of his sessions you look and you go that's a bit interesting like 28 sets for chest like or whatever it might be but you're like just training with that atmosphere with someone with so much knowledge um and then him obviously pushing you i think could be hard to go past and in terms of gyms it's hard because i'd probably go that uh binos gym over in dubai i reckon that would be a really good one to hit but then at the same time even like oxygen and powerhouse would also be really good like the kuwait gym where jack put on 10 kilos of lean mass in 10 weeks um Ooh, that was a good real...
3: growing phase
0: yeah like 10 just... days he was there I've just been maintaining since then yeah something's actually a...
2: atrophied over here yeah yeah <laughs> Do you know what is
3: an honorable mention and that i just thought of is a session with Joe Bennett, aka the hypertrophy coach, Mm -hmm. because he's one of those dudes who's like very Meadows-esque DC, where he like Mm. is one of the guys that has the respect of both sides. Like all the IFBB pros respect him because he's worked with like some phenomenal athletes and they all come to him for advice. But then he also is very switched on, uses the evidence and sound logic to guide a lot of his principles. So I think that, yeah, a session with Joe Bennett would be immense as well.
0: Hmm. who else do you think would get a good recommendation in there in regards to training with
3: i mean there's people like matt jansen but you never really see like him training them but man i still find that whole concept so strange like these dudes are professionals in the very sense where like they derive their income from training and i like like how much more can a coach like really get out of someone at that level like I always find it a bit funny, like, oh, yeah, I need my coach with me there to push me. Like, I don't know how that sits with me.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a little bit of an interesting one, but, like, even, like, Hanny, like, he would, like, literally fly to the country, like, for example, like Chris Bumstead and sit there for, like, two weeks, putting him in through a camp every session, you know, helping him with every meal and stuff like that. To have your coach literally fly to a whole different country just to do a boot camp with you, I think, that like, sets a vibe, you know. For the actual entirety of prep as well. And then, like, you know, he does that for all of his athletes. So I don't know. I think there would be something really cool there with having someone like there spotting you for like multiple sets, multiple workouts for m- multiple weeks on end in like the hardest prep you're probably ever going to go through. Having that knowledge there as well for like, you know, if you do need to ask questions, just having there with him that like the fingertip, I think that's like that. But that's what these high level coaches can do. Like, you know, they earn so much money, like they're able to literally that's their job to sit there and like you know babysit like a couple of olympia tier athletes and you know that's how they make their money mm. yeah
3: like the dy coming across assistant coach for camp general you know not even yeah, the main he, man and he's still he, got that sort of money
0: crazy yeah yeah exactly like the money i was paid to go over on that trip was just ridiculous astronomical <laughs> all right um, next question do you think the benefits of a surplus I take this is more or less like in regards to putting on muscle is more due to the energy to build the new tissue or the energy to push harder into the uh, in the gym and provide a better stimulus Jack this one's yours mate
2: I would I would say the I mean it's a mixture of both of course but I would say probably more the the former rather than the latter because people can still train incredibly hard at maintenance if they're at a effective body weight, like a, a good body weight for them. They have good external stability through, um, through leverages, uh, and look at strength athletes. Like they, of course, some kind of push up body weight and then come down in body weight when they compete. But a lot of them do kind of, they don't do necessarily bulking phases and they're still able to be incredibly strong. Um, partly due to the, I guess, the technical efficiency of the lift itself. But I, I, and we see it time and time again with, with our clients that we work with that people who maybe do maintain for too long uh or they're just in a gaintaining phase, like they their performance in the gym won't necessarily be poor, but the changes in their physique will, will have a point of diminishing returns if if they don't introduce an element of weight gain. Um yeah, so that's my opinion.
0: What about UDC?
1: Mm, I, yeah i agree i agree with jack uh i i definitely think it is it is twofold and it's it's not just going to be you know solely one one or the other but <clears throat> i mean building new tissue is is an energetic is you you require energy to do so and also you know training intensely in the gym as well is it has energetic costs as well so i think the the benefit of being in a surplus is to to fuel both processes realistically but i would i would align more so with, with Jack as well that um building new tissue requires requires more energy. And you know be you can see athletes that that produce insane training quality and even do so at maintenance, you know, and and um uh, but I do think that as you become more neurologically efficient at said movements, there's somewhat of a cap associated with that. You can only become, become so you know, technically uh, uh, improved upon a lift, um, particularly if you standardize those lifts over time. And so, the the benefits you see in terms of, uh, you know, one's physique comes from building more tissue and 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 strength as well. So, uh, that's why I guess a, a surplus is often promoted within a building phase more so than than the tissue that you could build just from keeping your calories at, at maintenance level. Yeah, very nice. Good evening, Dad, Lawrence.
3: Yeah, I just think it's very simple. Like if the building blocks or the tissues that you, well, the things that you need to build muscle are not there, you don't have the the sufficient building blocks. You're not going to be able to build it regardless of how hard you're training. Like you can train as hard as you want in prep and you're not really going to gain any additional tissue from that. So I think it's pretty clear cut.
0: Mm. and i don't think there's many times where you're probably going to be sitting in an energy surplus and realistically not pushing much harder in the gym and making that progression that you see they kind of like coincide it's like if you're gonna you're gonna get the benefits of the surplus in regards to you know building more muscle tissue with that extra food but then the training performance is also the byproduct of that not very often you're going to see one without the other normally they're going to coincide can posing be too over the top slash cocky to the point where it becomes and like portrays a sense of arrogance. Jack, have you seen this with classic at all? Uh,
2: not really, to be honest. I think, mm. I don't want to sound biased in saying this, but I would say it's maybe comes across more in the female categories mm. than, than the males. Like I can't think of a situation where someone is maybe too cocky in, in classic or, or bodybuilding due to the way that they pose unless they're potentially, I mean, there was that situation, of course, between like Ronnie and Jay where like they, they touch each other's glutes or quads. Like that's a little bit cocky and, and arrogant, but at the same time, it's a bit lighthearted. Like if someone's doing that purely to tell the judges, Oh, look at this guy's quads, he's not lean enough. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cocky, but I don't, you don't really see anyone doing that. It's always from a lighthearted perspective. Yeah, exactly. But I I think the short answer is yeah, it's totally possible to be cocky, but I don't think it's very common. Um, and uh, yeah but well, what do you think about maybe the female categories
0: i think you definitely see like a lot more variety i think with like especially like the natural federations with like the bikini routines like and stuff like that like you know you see a lot more flow than what you would normally see and the, the variance is a lot different like some people won't have any flow and it'll just be like you know just very nice and pleasing to look at and some people have so much flow it just looks over the top slash like you know maybe a bit too confident um now necessarily i don't really see that with the ipb i think it's because the ipb like you know has such a judging criteria on the overall look like how they present themselves on stage where you don't really get that like over the top flow that you might get with like you know an icn bikini competitor for example like you know the, the judging criteria is a lot different it's like a lot more straight cut with the ipb so I definitely think like, you know, you could probably be a too, a bit too over the top slash like, you know, flowy, let's say for like the IPB to the point where it's definitely going to get you marked down. But like, you know, in terms of confident and arrogant, like, you know, you should be confident within your posing routine, especially after, you know, most IPB girls probably practice 200 hours of their posing routine before they even step on that stage. And to be honest, that's probably a stock standard minimum for a majority of those girls now. So like, you know, by 200 hours, you're pretty damn proficient with your routine and um, you're probably going to be pretty confident with it as well. And, you know, I wouldn't like if you're then going to portray that as arrogance, maybe on the back end, and like, you know, that's how your posing routine looks. I don't know. I don't really see it too often where some girl looks so good with her posing routine um, that it comes across as arrogant. Like for example, like Ellen, that complete competed last season, she looked absolutely phenomenal with her posing. It was like, it was so confident. Like, you know, you could tell that she had practiced hours of it and there wasn't a single bit there. Like, you know, with the confidence that she portrayed within a routine that it came across as arrogant, she Mm -hmm. knew that she deserved to be on there. um, And you could definitely, tell that just by her routine
2: i think i think outside as a bodybuilding as well if someone's not familiar with the sport it can definitely be interpreted as arrogance because i mean even if you speak to a bystander who hasn't gone to a bodybuilding show and you're like hey these these guys they get shredded and they go up on stage and pose they're like oh these guys must be so arrogant vain full of themselves Mm -hmm. but that's of course i mean sure there are vain bodybuilders but for the most part i think we're all
0: pretty pretty Mm -hmm. stock standard And especially like in regards to the, like the bikini, you want to be confident. You want to have a smile and you want to like, Mm -hmm. you know, look somewhat like cocky to a point. Like, you know, if you're up there and you don't have a smile, you don't even look like you practice your routine. It doesn't look like even a little bit cocky. Like chances are, you're probably going to get marked down for it. And that even goes the same for ICN bikini as well. Like, and, you know, some of these other natural federations, like, you know, you should be confident within your routine and you should know that, like, you know, the hours that you put in definitely gets portrayed through the package that you're bringing like even with your smile your overall presentation your posture and stuff like that with your posing
1: i think in in training we often refer to uh peak performance being associated with a a peak level of arousal, right like we've talked about it in the past in terms of like the yerkes dodson law and i think that can even apply upon upon posing as well on stage so like we've all seen, for example, some competitors have walked out on stage and perhaps they're just a little bit too mellow. They just go out there. They're just kind of too chilled, too relaxed. And it reflects that within their posing, let's say more so upon, you know, men's bodybuilding where I do think a bit of kind of oomph and, you know, a bit of uh, uh, sort of showmanship up on stage can certainly be of benefit to like better showcase your physique. Uh, and then on the flip side of that, I think where someone comes out and perhaps they're way too aroused, they're way too hyped up, they're way too, you know, yelling at the crowd and gritting their teeth and, and you know, roaring kind of thing. And I think that can detract from someone's posing to the point where maybe they forget to control their abdominals in a, in a front pose, or maybe they're forgetting to switch the legs on because they're so, you know, hyped up and, and yelling at the crowd as they're hitting their, you know, their 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 front double bicep pose. So I think, on both ends of the spectrum, there's probably a an optimal point of of sort of hype for you as the athlete, where you're going to be able to put, essentially train your best, what well, you know in your in the gym, uh, and also be able to to pose your best as well.
0: Yeah, because like the only thing that I could really think that's come across as probably quite arrogant is like what Jack mentioned, like, you know, with like the Jay Cutler and like Ronnie Coleman. Like, you know, when you see them like visibly going like back and back, like back and forth, one's obviously quite arrogant. But like realistically, you don't see that anymore at that caliber. So
1: I think where sometimes arrogance can come through is like if if the if the 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 marshal, the marshalling people on stage have put the competitors too close together. And then you're you're, you know, let's say you're in a back double bicep pose and you're you're going to strike that and your arm's being shaded by someone else. And then someone else has kind of, you know, brought their arm forward or taken a step back. And I think that can sometimes showcase arrogance where, you know, someone in the crowd will go, look at this guy. Like he's stepping back into the pose, like to to try and look bigger towards the the crowd. But I look at it from the perspective like if I'm the competitor up there and we're so close together and I'm not being seen, like I'm gonna step back, I'm gonna like bring my arm into view so that I get, I get seen by the judges. It's not because I'm like, Hey, fuck these guys next to me. <laughs> it's more because like, I want to get seen, right. That's why we're up there. So I, I think sometimes that can perceive, be perceived as arrogance. And then of course there's competitors, competitors that they're like, everyone's evenly spaced out, but this guy's taken like four steps back towards the judges, you know? And to me, that's like, all right, that's, that's like not
0: on man. You're a dick hmm. <laughs> step yeah. back. I remember when Lawrence was like backstage at the WMBF and he turns around and he looks at me. He goes, If Eric fucking blocks my back double bicep, I'm gonna use him like a speed bag on stage. <laughs> oh
3: mate, Eric listens to these, so he'll he'll like that. Yeah and he'll yeah. confirm it. Yeah. Exactly. I believe he did hear it at the time.
0: Exactly. i look forward to it. All right. <laughs> But you're just hearing that backstage, and you're in the alleyway, and you're just like, "Man, this guy blocks my back double. I'm speed bagging him." Was you? Like, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> we'll say that out loud at the WMBF, uh, Jack. So you know we'll yeah. clear the line for you, and we'll edge your back a couple of inches on that line too.
1: But then it would be like correction. Like I'm not doing it now because I'm too depleted. So maybe like in the off season, we might we might take this outside.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Has comp prep impacted your relationship with food in a good? or a bad way what about you dc
1: i i think it certainly can for me not personally definitely not personally uh i would say through the initial stages of the recovery phase certainly you know you're trying to establish a relationship towards food again but i think because i know what it's like to establish balance within the off season i'm able to compartmentalize prep for what it needs to be in terms of precision, in terms of striking targets, in terms of the diligence and 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 uh you know the precision essentially around around tracking and having things everything on 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 target right and then the balance that you establish within within the off season I'm able to separate those those two from one another. Um, not to say I don't prioritize good precision, etc., within the off season, but we know that in a contest prep, it's it's you know it's a level up, right? So, but I think some competitors can walk walk away from it and and have a very jaded understanding of what nutrition then needs to look like outside uh, to the point where you know off plan meals can create a lot of angst and anxiety uh, because it's not tracked, it's not on target, you know, and 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 vice versa. Some people who essentially established so much prep trauma, I like to call it, that the idea of tracking just completely freaks them out and stresses them. And and it's sort of this, you know, a complete left field versus right field sort of mentality. So I think a little bit comes down to the the more you prep, I guess, the, the better you're able to handle those phases. And I think the, the more support that you get through those recovery phases helps for a more uh, simplistic and Kind of healthy
0: transition back into the off season
1: again.
0: Yeah, 100%. Completely agree. It's, I think, especially on the first time, like even with myself, like, do I think it's impacted my relationship with food now? Like, I don't think it has realistically at all. I've got a better understanding. So I'd probably say that if it had added. It's been a benefit, but I know definitely like post my first show and even maybe a little bit post my second show, if you were to ask me that question six months, uh six weeks post-show, I could probably give you a completely different answer. But now, fast forward, like you know, however many years I've been competing and how many seasons I've run, like you know, over the time I've learned how to embrace the off-season, like you know, what's entailed with the actual dieting phase, what's expected in the post-show phase um to the point where now like i mentioned if you were to ask me i probably wouldn't say that there's realistically been any negatives that have come about but you know you asked me six weeks post the first show when i went to bali the day after i completed my show and then obviously you have no uh like you know no limits in regards to food it's completely it's a completely different situation um what about you jack
2: yeah, I think I think it certainly has the potential to disrupt people's relationships with food. And I think there are times in the bodybuilding journey, especially in comp prep, where even if even if you don't feel like it is impacting your relationship with food, it probably is. I think even for 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 us, like it's going to increase our food focus. And as coaches, we and experienced competitors, we might be able to be like, okay, I noticed that my uh, food focus is increasing, and then I think now we can logically tell ourselves, okay, this is a byproduct of dieting. Like even even the other day, like I was uh, I was using some peanut butter, and and I'm only a couple of weeks into mini cutting, and and I noticed that uh, there's a little bit of extra food focus. But I wanted to add water to the peanut butter so I could spread it more evenly on on what I was eating, um, and then I was like jack there's don't be an idiot there's no reason to do that just just eat your eat
0: your peanut butter normally um I thought you going somewhere else with a hole in the peanut butter story there for a second <laughs> mate
2: i didn't mention any holes you're the one who bought in the
0: hole here <laughs> Ooh, busted.
2: Oh <laughs> but yeah i think and i know i've also had um before i even got into bodybuilding i had uh, like a, a much poorer relationship with food than i than i do now so I think it's obviously very individualized, but I don't think anyone walks out of a bodybuilding prep like completely un, unscathed from a food standpoint. There's always going to be some, not not necessarily a negative impact, but it's going to change the way you perceive food in, in some respect in one way or another.
0: Yeah, 100%. What about you, Lawrence?
3: Yeah, I probably agree with, with you, D.Y. Like at the stage where I'm at now, I would say that on the whole, like, on prep and bodybuilding has improved my nutritional literacy and like my nutritional behaviors but up up until the point where like you know my 2017 and 2018 prep like i hadn't been doing the day-to-day for long enough to establish what like 3dmj call like the default diet like what are the habits that you fall back onto on a normal day where you're eating protein four or five times a day eating fruit eating veg you've got like your normal set of meals whereas like early on in my career, I hadn't really established that quote unquote default diet. So I remember when I came out of prep, I'd be like, okay, sweet. Like, you know, I'm still going to track my macros, but once a week I'm going to have like, I literally used to call it a free day where I wouldn't track anything and essentially just eat whatever I wanted. And then like, I eventually would be like, oh, so like it's 3 p.m. I've eaten like a whole lot of nonsense and I've barely had any protein today. Like, is this what I need to do to be like improving? And it was also at the point where, I was very much like, okay, we're eating something off plan or we're hitting the macros perfectly. So it'd be like, okay, we were going out for dinner for someone's birthday. Oh, well, I may as well make today a free day because like, you know, we're eating off plan later. So whatever. But as you mature as a bodybuilder, you then learn, okay, I can work these things in. I can be a bit more flexible when I'm able to be flexible in the off season. And when I do need to be a bit more rigid, I can do that as well without it sort of impacting my overall relationship with food. And yeah. Like you're always going to come out of prep with a few sort of weird habits. And even probably now, I'm probably not 110% like recovered from a food focused standpoint. Like I'm probably still like, oh yeah, like what am I going to have tomorrow for meal three after I train? But as you keep getting deeper and deeper in, those things will eventually subside. But I think that for me, the most important thing for people is having that default diet, that sort of fallback set of behaviors. Once you can establish that, You'll notice that your post-comp recovery is so much better,
0: hundred mm. percent. And that's one thing to touch on there as well. I think how your your relationship with food goes, like post-show or like once you've first entered your like actual competition prep itself, I think is going to be heavily influenced on how you handled, for example, maybe <laughs> the first year prior. In regards to like the nutrition like you know were you actually tracking prior it's going to hit you a lot harder um post show if you didn't have the fundamentals in line before you've actually entered a prep itself (laughs) (laughs) lawrence is showing nonsense on the potty boys i'm sorry listeners
3: (laughs) oh jack crunchy or smooth mate
2: (laughs) smooth all the way
0: yeah it's much and then And then Crunchy on the top. a better experience all round. Cr- crunchy when he spreads it. Smooth. Uh, yeah, smooth. <laughs> 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 all right, Lawrence, you're going to have to listen up here, man, because this next one. Right. Best post-workout recovery. Stretching, foam rolling, sports massage. If someone was to say 30 minutes post-workout, you have 30 minutes to kill, what would you recommend them to do? now this is obviously outside of getting your nutrition in you're sleeping in if someone was to ask you what would you be like hey you know what if you got 30 minutes and you got unlimited money go get a deep tissue massage or would you yeah Yeah. what would you go
3: look i probably if it was like immediately post-workout i probably wouldn't recommend like especially like a deep tissue massage for example like Now, would you maybe benefit from like a light massage, like technically you call it like effleurage, where you're just moving some fluid around, makes it feel nice. Like that could be okay. But I think if anything, deep tissue may be a bit too disruptive immediately following a workout. And I would say even in general, you should be relatively selective about when you do have a heavy massage. Like I wouldn't be putting that on you know, the day before a a hard training session or even the day of a hard training session because it is still a a stimulus or a quote-unquote insult that the body has to recover from. So I think that, you know, deep tissue wouldn't be doing that very close to training, I would probably say. Other things like, for example, like for me, I trained legs today and once we get off this call, I'm going to go for a little walk and I know that I'm going to feel better after the walk. So I think that a bit of light activity can be pretty beneficial, like just moving around, getting a bit of blood flowing, but man, it's like, would I honestly sitting on the couch and just relaxing is probably the thing that I'd go for because like everything else, yes, it might have a small benefit, but is it really going to make a difference in the long run? Probably not. So if I had to choose one of those modalities, uh, I don't know, maybe put some compression stockings on and go sit on the couch, but Other than that, I'm not
0: sure. Now, if you were to implement some of this stuff, because I know that you do some stretching and some foam rolling, would you put it in pre-session if you were going to implement some of this stuff or how would you go about that?
3: Well, for myself, like I don't do any stretching after the workout, but if someone wanted to do some stretching in which they're holding like prolonged static stretches above like a minute or 30 seconds, then yeah you probably want to do that after a training session there can be some interference effect and for foam rolling but then again you know like I do some static stretching before I train hold them for about 10 to 15 seconds but I'm just doing that because it relieves a bit of neural stiffness just gets me feeling a bit more limber I do a bit of foam rolling because it feels nice and I feel you know slightly more ready to train Um, but once again, it's like, if you're going to be doing this stuff to an intensive standard, like if you want to do like some yoga type stretches, where you're holding it for a prolonged period, maybe doing it after a session or potentially on a rest day would probably be a slightly better option. And once again, like a lot of what we're doing with the foam rolling, with the stretching, we're not actually impacting tissues. We're sort of working on our nervous system and just desensitizing a stimulus within the moment. Now that doesn't discount it because it can still make you feel better, but realistically it doesn't really matter when these things happen because they're very sort of transient changes and they're, they're only
0: happening for a very small amount of time. Perfect. Very well summed up. Next question here. This one's going to you, Jack. How do you overcome anxiety before a hard set? Yeah, it's interesting. I had this conversation with
2: a client uh, yesterday and I, uh, I think the more you train, the better you get at overcoming it. Like for us, I think for all of us, we get an element of anxiety maybe associated with a lift that we know is going to be very difficult or anxiety associated with not just the difficulty, but the desire to improve and to progress uh, because we care about uh, the lift itself. And I think just that habitual sort of exposure to that feeling over time does make it better. Like, I I still get that uh, sort of butterfly feeling whenever I approach a big lift and get a bit nervous, but you end up just doing it anyway. And it's, I I find that for me, at least it gets easier each time. Um, It never gets easy full stop. Um, And I think ultimately you should be enjoying the, the after effects of the, the lift itself too. Like at the end of a session, if there's no sort of positive reinforcement associated with the the training session then that's also questionable so i'd like to think that the the reinforcement afterwards like the endorphins and that you get uh is uh makes it easier next time or you can at least remember that um i would also potentially consider like assessing the amount of volume that you're doing especially for those larger lifts which that anxiety is is often correlated with like are you doing any junk volume could you maybe consider reducing sets a little bit, extending your rest time. Uh, Maybe, maybe not. But yeah, those are my overall thoughts.
0: There's one point I'm going to bring up here with like the sets is like, are you actually afraid for the set? Cause I know for myself, like it wasn't realistically the given exercise that gave me the anxiety. It was more or less like the forced progression that I feel like I had to make. Like for example, with myself in the off season, like I kind of preemptively like, Oh, look at my log book. or look what I did last week. And I'm like, all right, I got 80 kilos for seven this week. I'm going to get 80 for eight. And I'm more or less get that anxiety around. Like, you know, if I was to get it, like, I need to get this extra rep here. Like because otherwise I've got one shot here. If I don't get that extra rep, I'm the same as last week. And that's what more or less gave me the anxiety because the actual lift itself realistically did well considering I don't train the legs hard anymore, it makes it a lot easier. Um but that's obviously yeah. Cause a lot of the anxiety when you'd probably ask anyone would probably be on the lower body. But another thing is, is like, what's the worst that really happens. If you fail the lift, if you got good form, good control, like, you know, you know what you're doing within the set, you've got good composure. The worst thing that happens on the leg press is it hits a little stopper. You're done. So what you missed out on that extra rep, like, you know, get in the zone, like, you know, give it absolutely everything you have. The worst thing that happens is it hits the little stop up. You don't end up making the progression. So it's not the end of the world um, tackling that set, but obviously go into that set, you know, with a clear idea of where you want to go in regards to the progression in that set. Um, But like I mentioned, the actual exercises themselves don't really give me the anxiety. It's more or less the progression that I force upon myself that, you know, as a competitive person that really probably drives that anxiety. What about you DC?
1: Yeah, I think they're all great points. I honestly don't really have a whole lot to add here, um, but I think trying to de-catastrophize de- de- the uh, the the lift itself is important. And like you mentioned, Jack, constant uh, exposure to that lift is important. I think it's also important to, try to find where, where this angst is coming from. Is it an angst associated with progression so i'm 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 you know i i value progression so much that if i don't make progression i'm not going to feel great about myself or my lift or am i am i having you know anxiety around this lift because i'm going in there thinking i'm about to snap my lower back in half when i'm deadlifting you know i think if it's if it's if it's the, the second option there then then you know I, i'm and and you could even speak on this on this lawrence but I truly believe that if I go into a lift and I'm thinking that I'm going to hurt my back, like I'm probably going to do it at some stage, you know, I'm going to catastrophize the lift and I'm probably going to will myself to experience pain in a structure where maybe, maybe I shouldn't really be, you know, experiencing pain, pain works in weird, weird and wonderful ways. Right. So I think it's really important to firstly understand, you know, why am I feeling angst around this particular movement? And I guess, just like you've alluded to jack as well positive reinforcement you know, is incredibly important knowing that the the high that you experience after lifting the lift and 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 progressing and and feeling incredible about it fast supersedes the small amounts of angst that you have you know going into that particular movement um but i mean aside from that uh trying to find the the perfect level of, of arousal associated with that lift so might be putting on some some music Like I'm probably going to go into a lift feeling more anxious about it if I have no headphones on and I'm listening to music from you know from the gym, uh, as opposed to if I'm going there with with my own music where I can cue the song, I can cue the drop, you know whatever it may be. I'm probably going to go into that lift feeling a lot more confident. And I guess if it's if it's, I I think back to when I first started to get more into the into gym training, and I feel like I used to get more anxious and uh, and anxiety around lifting because I was often opting for progressions where probably weren't smart. So like if I struggled on on doing the, you know, the 30K dumbbells for flat press at the time, the next week I was like, let's just like throw the 40s up. Let's just see what what I can, you know, what I can do with it. And, you know, I think back now and I'm like 10 kilo progression, 30s were, you know, hard last week, probably not ideal, right? (laughs) That's a huge jump. So now I'm obviously more smart, smart, much smarter in terms of my progressions upon my lifts. And usually the progressions that I put forth are, are ones that I'm I'm fairly confident that if I get myself in the right you know frame of mind, I can I can achieve that next week. So I guess I'm you know you, we we become smarter with our training, our, our mm-hmm. training progressions over time. And I guess lastly would be if you're doing an exercise that requires or you could benefit from having a spotter there, then then potentially have that spotter there. Uh, And it could even be very much a psychological aspect. You're doing a leg press, even you have your mate that's training nearby your partner. Hey, can you come over and watch me do this set or just stand next to me in case I need your help? And you may very well not need their help, but just having them there might be that, you know,
0: that assistance that that you might need, even from a psychological perspective. Hmm. What about you, Lawrence? Do you get any gym anxiety before going for those hard sets, especially when I'm present? Of course
3: yeah i think uh it's tough when you like reflect back on prep because i think that you become probably a little bit more anxious on the whole just because your body is under such stress so i think that you know in prep it can definitely play out and especially because like you know the intensity of the sessions you're trying to leave it all out there you're trying to hang on to training performance and you know sometimes the prospect of losing a rep or dropping load can make you more anxious than the prospect of getting a new pb because it's actually like oh i feel like i'm going backwards here so i certainly found that like just taking a moment prior to those sets to compose yourself is a really good idea and you know just getting in the right headspace and and often it might actually be calming yourself down depending on the lift like it might be a lift that is a little bit more technical in nature and you actually maybe need to take that moment to zen yourself out a little bit as opposed to build up the arousal you know like dc talks about there is a a sweet spot for everybody i think some practical things as well as like you know caffeine intake so i know that for myself if i'm going into a leg day i'm already like as a default going to be needing to create more arousal on that day so if i go in super stimmed out And ironically, today, I took a pre-workout sample that I got given the other day, and it was way too strong. And I was like very jittery for my deadlifts uh, to the point where it actually like interfered with the set a little bit. So sort of being mindful about how much caffeine you can tolerate, what is that upper limit before you maybe start to get a bit jittery and a little bit anxious. I think that's another practical thing that people can consider. Um, But also just recognizing, you know, like what is gym anxiety because you care about the lift or you know if you're starting to see those things leak into lots of things throughout the day like oh i'm anxious what am i going to eat for lunch oh i'm anxious what am i going to say to this person at work like it may also be like a little a little flag to say that okay maybe this is something that you you do need some assistance with someone to help you um, develop strategies to cope with stuff like that and i don't think um, that's something to be ashamed about i think it's a, a good thing about our culture is that it's become, you know, very normalized to seek care with a healthcare professional that deals with mental health. Um, if that's something that you need to do. There's probably times in my life that I should have, um, but didn't. And, and thankfully, like I'm in a good spot with it now. But um, I think we would encourage anyone, whether it's a client, a patient, a friend, like if, if you're noticing those things starting to leak into other aspects of your life, have a chat to someone.
0: Very nicely put. One final question for Jackie: Any plans for the hundredth episode merch? Any any merch updates? What's the go here? Are we getting anything? Yeah, I
2: think we've we've had a discussion about it, and we are definitely going to uh, create a new line of merch, and yeah, make it a bit different. We've um we've put up some samples already with with some very sophisticated techniques of graphic design, and we're looking forward to uh, sharing it with everyone. Mm. Perfect. yeah Exciting. i mean we
1: might even be going for a little bit more of like a what an anime inspired kangaroo design that looks pretty badass so keep mm. an update for that one damn yeah I mean, me and
3: d me and dy have got quite a few connections we're actually heading over to milan fashion week this week uh we're both going to be repping the new tees so that should yeah. be good
0: we're going to get them uh handmade in the uh prada factory over there in milano and then we're going to be getting them shipped in so they are going to be authentic and they're really going to be top quality now with that lawrence you did end up placing the orders for the new cars too we kind of knew these were going to be a big hit so we've already pre preemptive preemptively ordered all four cars
3: yeah mate between that between the online coaching between the sheer amount of money that we generate from uh, ad revenue on this podcast yeah, it's uh it's not gonna be an issue. And with these shirts going at nine 9- ninety-nine nine nine, and um, to that you might say, Lawrence, where's the decimal?
0: What decimal? Yeah, exactly right, exactly right. Like these shirts are limited, and not only that, I'm super excited to see Jack pick him up in his new Cybertruck once he gets that payment, <laughs> the first payment coming too. So I'm excited for it. Yeah. Can't wait. It's for not that. Jack's Cybertruck,
1: he's giving away this one just like the last mm-hmm. one. Yeah, he's yeah. actually
0: gonna get two, so yeah, yeah. Very nice. So exciting things to look forward to listeners. But that is yet another episode of the BDU podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. If you can, leave us a five-star rating on your platform of choice. Catch you next week.